0: All right. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. That's Ephesians 40 verse 8. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. This is the word of God. As we continue on in our study of Ephesians, we've come to this section, this second half where Paul is teaching us to walk worthy of our calling in Christ. He actually said just that in, in chapter 4. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And he's taught us about the, uh, the unity that we're to have in the church, how we're to use our gifts to love and, and serve one another. How that we've been made a new man in Christ and in very practical ways we put off our old nature day by day and put on the new man that is in Christ. And so as he's been teaching us to walk worthy, that word walk just simply refers to our lifestyle, our our daily living, our conversation. He comes specifically in chapter 5, this first part, to teach us to walk in love. When we get to verse 8, you'll see in a couple of weeks that he teaches us to walk in light. And then the week after that, verse 15, he tells us to walk in wisdom. But today we see that he teaches us, as verse 2 says, to walk, to live our life, to carry ourselves, conduct ourselves in love. Now, how do we do that? I think that's what this passage teaches us. And the first thing I want you to recognize in walking in love is that we we walk in love out of our experience of Christ's love. We can only walk in love out of our experience of Christ's love. And he refers to Christ's love there. Walk in love, verse 2, as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The kind of love that Christ loved us with was a love that was selfless. He gave Himself for us. You think from the perspective of Jesus being the Son of God from before all creation who has existed from eternity past on His throne in heaven worshipped by angels night and day given all glory and honor and power has a creation who's rebelled against Him. And what's the logical thing to do if you are all powerful and perfect and you have a creation, and creation has rebelled against you? Zap! Pow! Gone! Start over! Good thing I'm not God, right? Good thing you're not either. He's worshipped by angels in the perfection of heaven, night and day, doesn 't owe humanity a thing yet he chooses to humble himself to step down from heaven, not setting aside any of his deity or his godness, but taking to himself the likeness of human flesh, taking himself for himself a body, being born in the humblest of fashions, not to a wealthy family, not to a king, not to anyone of any notoriety, but to the family of a carpenter, not even. In the day of hospitals, but in a stable, born to a virgin, around smelly animals, and laid in a feeding trough at his birth. He grows up and he, he lives a regular, hard-working kind of life, learns the trade of his earthly father, Joseph, grows up being a carpenter, he's humbled himself, he lives this kind of life, and he comes to preach. And he doesn't preach by showing up at the palace, he doesn't go to Rome and preach to Caesar, but he just begins begins preaching to ordinary everyday people. His following is tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. So that even the religious, the ones you might expect to be looking for him and to be excited that he's arrived, begin to criticize him and hate him because of the people he's preaching to and the people he's associating with. And he lives his life humbly. He lives poor without a place to lay his head. And he goes all the way sinlessly to a cross so that those who hated him finally have their way with him. But turns out it was actually God's way with him in choosing to lay down his life for sinners. And he doesn't just die, but he dies in the most gruesome, most cruel, inhumane way possible by crucifixion. He chooses to lay down his life on an old, rugged, splintered, wooden cross with spikes driven through his hands and through his feet after his flesh has already been ripped to shreds by the whip, the crown of thorns beaten into his brow, being spit in the face, being mocked, ridiculed, criticized, and hoisted up naked in front of everyone to be shamed and to cruelly die. That seems like a wasted life. That seems like a life that would not amount to anything and account for anything in all of human history, yet it was the most significant life ever because of why he did it. I met a guy this week on the Greenway and was able to to start a conversation and share the gospel with him. And he had a chain around his neck with a cross on it. And I just asked him, do you know what that cross means? He said, what does it mean? I said, well, do you know what the cross is for? I think Jesus died on it. Yeah, but why? And he, he knew the right answer. He knew the right answer was to say for our sins, right? That's the... That's sort of, if you ever went to Sunday school, it's what you learned. He knew that was the right answer, but he didn't understand the concept of it. And I said, Travis, his name was Travis. I said, Travis, your mama took you to church when you were a kid. You, he told me that she had died. Nobody likes to think about death, but we really should because we're all going to face it. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, your life is messed up. Yes, you, you, you're just trying to get back on your feet. But listen, there is a God who loves you and that crosses the proof of it. That not because you were righteous, not because you had anything to offer God, not because you were good in any way, but in spite of all of that, despite the fact that you are a sinner, and that things will not go well for us on judgment day. Because we deserve punishment, because we deserve hell. In spite of all that, while we were still sinners, Jesus loved you enough to go to that cross, not just to die a cruel death to be admired by all humanity for all time, but to die for you so that He could make payment for your sins. And friends, I bring the same message to you. You're a sinner. You deserve punishment from God. God would be just and holy and right to punish you. To cast you into hell for all eternity. It's what you and I deserve. But He is rich in mercy. Because of His great love with which He loved us. That even when we were dead in sins, He died for our sins so that we could be raised to new life in Christ. He purchased our forgiveness, purchased our redemption out of love. It was a selfless love given himself for us. He gave himself for people who didn't deserve it. It was a love that gave himself for us and he loved us for the glory and the pleasure of God. Can I just go ahead and and put things in perspective? Jesus didn't just die for you, for you. He, he, he died, verse 2 says, As Christ also loved us and has and given himself an offer, for us an offering and a sacrifice to whom? To God. For a sweet smelling aroma. You see in the, the tabernacle and then in the temple they would bring their sacrifices to God and, and some of those would have certain scents and the smoke would go up and the smell of it would just fill the temple. And that's how it was referred to as a, a sweet smelling aroma to God. Those sacrifices were given, yes, to satisfy the payment for sin for a time, but also to bring worship and honor and glory and pleasure to God. And Jesus died on the cross, not just because he loved you, but because he wanted to bring glory and pleasure to his Father in heaven. He did it ultimately out of obedience and submission to his Father. And we must walk in love out of our experience of Christ's love. Friends, you cannot walk in love, you cannot conduct yourself in love in a God-honoring kind of way until you have experienced for yourself the love that God gives. He, he says just that in, in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You're only able to love if you've been born of God and experienced the love of God. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then if you skip to verse 19 in that same chapter, he says this. You know this verse. We love Him because He first loved us. And I'll tell you, it's not only that we can love Him because He first loved us, but it is that we are able to love at all. You can only love at all in any God-honoring way. Because you have first been loved by Christ. The call that God gives to us to to live and to walk worthy of, of that calling with which we've been called, it's too high for us. We can't attain it on our own. We can't love like God loves unless we've been born again, made a new creation because of His love for us. So we walk in love out of our experience of Christ's love. But the second thing I want you to notice is this, is that we walk in love as we imitate Christ's love. There's some overlap here. We we can walk in love as we imitate Christ's love. He actually says that in verse 1. I know I'm getting out of order here. Verse 1, he says, Be imitators of God as dear children. Any of you ever, your kids ever try to copy the things that you were doing, even if it was very poorly? Nobody, come on, guys, are y'all awake? All right, thanks, Karen. Appreciate that. Anybody ever have your kids try to copy what you were doing, even if it was very poorly? Yes, your kids do that. That's what they do. They see how you act, they see how you conduct yourself, they see the things that you do, and then they try to mimic those things. I know it's, it's, he's not even three years old, but it was just kind of a neat moment for me. Jonah likes to rummage my backpack, and that really frustrates me sometimes because I can't find the things I need when I need them. But the other day, I was okay with the fact he rummaged my backpack because he rummaged my backpack, and when I found him in his bedroom, he had my Bible laid out, he had a commentary, he had a notepad, he had a lamp, and he had it all laid out on his knees beside his bed with that Bible open. And boy, I thought, if there's something, if there's something that's worth copying... If there's something that's worth imitating, it's that. Parents, mm, this is not the sermon, but parents, open your Bible and read it in front of your kids. Even if you're not reading it to them, spend your time alone with the Lord where they can see you. Don't do it for show. You're not trying to put on. I get that. But listen, be an example. Be an example to them. But we love God. We come to, to love God as we experience His love for us and then try to imitate it. Now listen, as children, our imitation is very poor. Our imitation is not going to measure up to the standard of Jesus apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in us. But we love, we walk in love as we love the same way He loved. Now how was it that He loved? He loved selflessly. It's a self-giving kind of love. A love that gives itself to people who don't deserve it people who have wronged you, people who even went as far as crucifying the Lord. What did he say when he was on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the love that Christians have is the love that they've experienced. You have been loved much. So how should you love? You should love much. Don't forget how the last chapter ended in, in, in chapter four there. He said in verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We walk in love by imitating the kind of love that we've been shown. A selfless, self-giving, sacrificial, forgiving kind of love. Now that shows itself in all areas of life. It shows itself at church with the people that we interact with here. Listen, we're all humans. We're going to get on each other's nerves sometimes. But how do we respond? Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, love. Why? Because we have been loved by Christ. It shows itself at home. In marriages, husband and wife, if there's people that get on each other's nerves, I mean, I'm talking about y'all, not my house, but if there's people that get on each other's nerves, it's married people, right? Amen. Do you think the gospel message and the walking in love is void just because you're in your bedroom? Oh, friend. We're, we're, we're nominating deacons today, and we've talked about in the passage that we read how that their, their conduct ought to be godly in the public view, right? But also at, in private, at home. Those are the kind of people that we need serving in our church. Those are the kind of people that we should all be as Christians, publicly and privately, loving the way that Christ has loved, forgiving one another, tender hearted, A soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs says. It extends to our own children. It extends to grandchildren and cousins and crazy uncles. It goes all throughout the family. It goes to our neighbors and in the workplace. Wherever you are, walking in love because Christ has shown you his love. In every domain, every sphere of life. The greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just be honest. There aren't many people we love more than we love our own selves. But he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Because you have been loved by God in that way. But not only is that love a self-giving kind of love. Remember, Jesus' love is a God-centered, God-honoring kind of love. See, you can be kind to people. And you can put on a smile and be nice and say good things to folks for the pat on the back, for the good reputation. You want people to think well of you. You might have any other kind of motive. I can't see your heart. I don't know what what all is out there. I can see what's in my heart. But we love each other selflessly, not because we're going to get anything back out of it, but we give that kind of love to one another because we want it to be God-honoring, God-centered, and pleasing to Him, regardless of how anybody responds to love. There's nothing more disheartening than trying to to have things right with somebody, offering a a hand of of cooperation and fellowship and maybe even forgiveness, and being just outright rejected. That's disheartening. But we go and do it anyway. Why? It doesn't matter how they respond. We're going to love because we want to honor God with the way we love. We love others because we love God. We walk in love out of our experience of Christ's love. We walk in love as we imitate Christ's love. But thirdly, I want us to notice that we walk in love by avoiding unloving deeds. So there's a positive and a negative. We positively love the way that we've been loved. and In the negative sense, we love by not doing unloving things. And he gives quite the list. That's actually the bulk of the passage that we read this morning. You can sum, sum up these things, I think, in three categories. Sexual immorality, greed, and corrupt speech. Sexual immorality, greed, and corrupt speech. Actually, says in verse 3 there, he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Fornication is a broad word. You'll recognize the Greek word porneia. It refers to any sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. God has given us the gift of marriage to enjoy the gifts that He's given us in that relationship, and any exercise of those gifts outside of marriage is sin. There's a range, there's a spectrum. We like to say that some are worse than others, but all sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. It's easy to point the finger outside the church to say the LGBTQ, the all those people. They're they're sinning. That's sexual sin. And let me be clear it is it's sin Adultery is also sin stepping outside of the bounds of a marriage you've already committed to before God and witnesses to enjoy that pleasure outside of those bounds is sin to exercise any sexual activity before marriage it's sin we're moving up the spectrum here to the things that are more acceptable, right? You step outside of that and you say, well, I'm not doing anything, but you're looking at things on your iPhone or watching stuff on TV, engaging in sexual activity alone. That's sin. Maybe you, you don't go that far, but you just, your eyes linger over things longer than they should, even on social media and sites that would be considered otherwise harmless. Jesus said that if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's how God sees it. And so wherever you put yourself on that spectrum, whether it's the things that we see as, oh, that's just disgusting and wrong, or whether it's over here, the the things that are acceptable and nobody really knows about it, all of those things are sin and fall under that category of pornea, fornication, sexual immorality. And he combines it with the words all uncleanness. So in case we missed anything there, we're saying fornication and all uncleanness. Anything you can come up with in your mind that would fall under the category of unclean, it's sin. And it's unloving. They're not just sin and sort of in the category of their own, but we're talking in the context here of walking in love. It is unloving to engage in that activity outside of God's prescription of marriage. Especially if you're already in a marriage. That's unloving to your wife or to your husband, that activity. If you aren't in a marriage yet, it's unloving to the person, one who you're doing things with, but then also the person you may one day marry. All sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. And then he says greed. Covetousness is the word he uses here in the the New King James. He says, or covetousness, longing after things which belong to others, things that you don't have to the point of being discontent with what God has given you, is sin. He actually, in verse 5, he says that uh, the covetous man is an idolater. Covetousness makes its way all the way into the category of worshiping another god. Because you just want things besides what God has given you. You desire things that you don't have. And it's sin. Greed is unloving. Why? Because the greedy take advantage of other people to get what they want. It's an unloving deed. And then he says corrupt speech. And this seems to keep coming up in Ephesians. It came up two or three times in chapter 4 and now again in in chapter 5. This idea of watching how we use our words. Because it's very easy to conduct ourselves in an unloving way with our tongues. Just back there in chapter 4 he said put away lying. and Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And then down in verse 29, he says, Let no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Friends, we're to speak the truth. We're not to lie. We're not to tear down and be divisive, but to build up other believers and to encourage other people with our words. And to not do so, to speak corruptly, is sin. It's unloving. Now, in chapter 5, he gets a little more specific in in how that carries itself out. He says foolish talking or coarse jesting. That's not to say you can't carry around and have a good time. Amen, Don? That's good. We like to crack jokes and pick on each other and have fun. Nothing wrong with that at all. So long as it doesn't cross that line into foolish talk, coarse jesting. It's okay to have fun. Enjoy yourselves with other Christians. But friends, what is it you're laughing about? What is it you're having a good time over? Oh, it's so easy to make sin acceptable, but when you make a joke out of it. Sin doesn't look so bad whenever somebody puts it in a context where you can laugh. Oh, I've experienced that before. You know, maybe you see something on television. It's a show you've never seen before and you watch a few minutes of it. and, And they say something and you laugh and then you realize what you just laughed at. And suddenly, as a Christian, you sort of feel disgusted with yourself because that's not something to joke about. Sin. So what do you do? You turn it off. You move on. Friends, we don't make light of sin. We don't joke about sin. We don't joke with people to the point that we hurt them. Be careful with your words. Because it's easy to be unloving with your, own, with your speech. These are self-centered, unloving sins that hurt others. All of them. They're dangerous. And they have to be given as a warning if we're to walk in love. Now, the warning he includes here is for those who walk in sin. Look at verse 5. He says, For this you know, that no fornicator. How many fornicators? Or None, right? No. No fornicator. Unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Did you hear that? For this you know, it's a sure thing, that no fornicator, sexually immoral, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God What did Jesus say to Nicodemus Unless a man is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God Anybody want to see the kingdom of God Yeah we all want to see the kingdom of God. So how do you take what Jesus says and what Paul says and make sense of it? Jesus says unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That seems to be the only qualification. Let me be clear. It is. The only way for a person to ever see the kingdom of God is to come to the recognition that they are sinners, that they deserve judgment, but Christ died for them so that they could be saved, they believe in Him, and they are born again of God. But then Paul says, no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous will see the kingdom of God. How do you fit those things together? He's talking about our walk, our lifestyle, our conduct. People who have been born again do not live a lifestyle of fornication, covetous greed, uncleanness. If you have been born again, what have we been saying these last few weeks? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so if your lifestyle is one of sexual immorality, greed, foolish talk, hurtful speech... Check your heart. You may not be born again. Jesus said, you know a tree by the fruit that it bears. You cannot pick grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. You know a tree by its fruit. A good tree has, will bring forth good fruit. A bad tree, a corrupt tree, will bring forth bad and corrupt fruit. So have you been born again? The only requirement for that is trust in Jesus. But if you've been born again, he's making you a new person. And your lifestyle is one of putting away these sins. It doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean you never sin. But it means that God is granting you the grace to put those things away. The warning continues, verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Listen, people would come along and say, grace, grace, grace. God gives so much grace, it doesn't matter what you do. He loves you. It doesn't matter what your life is like. Yes, He loves you, but He's going to change you. Don't think that God's love voids His holiness. His grace does not do away with righteousness. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, sexual immorality, greed, corrupt speech, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You're either walking in love or walking in sin. You're a child of God or you're a son of disobedience. You can't be halfway. You're not in one camp or the other. You're a Christian or you're lost. You'll see the kingdom of God or you'll face hell on judgment day. Those are the only two options before you. There is no middle ground. I come to bring this warning because I love you. I love you. And more than that, God loves you. In fact, the love that he showed in Christ in sending him to die for sins extends all the way to these sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so if your lifestyle is one of sexual immorality, whether other people see it or not, if your lifestyle is one of greed, if your lifestyle is one of corrupt speech, Jesus loves you so much, He will forgive and save you even from those sins. A true experience of Christ's love leads to imitating Christ's love and avoiding these unloving deeds. So then my question for you is this, are you standing in the righteousness of God? Are you standing in his love? Are you walking in his love? Or are you under his judgment and his wrath because of your sin? You're in one place or the other. And we're going to take some time to pray here. To search our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. To show us the truth and to show us where we truly stand with God. You have to respond to God's word. You can't hear this and just walk away like nothing's happened. Where do you stand with God? And so we're going to go ahead and bow our heads now. Go ahead and do that. And pray. What the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me, know my thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, I'm going to pray, and then we'll just have some time of quiet, as Laura will be playing on the piano. Search your heart and see where you stand before God. Father, I pray for the working of the Holy Spirit in this time of prayer. Show us where we stand with you. In Jesus' name.